Thank you for joining us at Rise Radio St. Catharines. Today we are interviewing Julie Christensen of Julie Christensen Counseling and Psychotherapy here in St. Catharines. She is the author of three books. One is entitled Anger Solutions. The next one is entitled Bullying is Not a Game. And the last one is entitled It is Well, a Study of Motherhood in Times of Crisis. So we welcome Julie to the RISE Radio St. Catharines. Thank you, Julie, for allowing us to get to know you and where you've come from and how it has shaped your destiny. Thanks so, for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I suppose I can tell a little bit of my background. I was uh, born in Kingston, Jamaica, and uh, my family decided to uproot and move to Canada in 1975 uh, because of the political and social unrest that was happening on the island at that time. And so they pulled up stakes. We came to Canada and were sponsored by my uncle, my dad's brother, lived with his family for a little while and then sort of launched out on our own, eventually sort of making a home for ourselves in Ottawa, Ontario. And uh, I would say that, you know, those early days of settling in Canada were, they were challenging, you know, for all of us. I mean, we had to transition from a place where it was hot all the time to, you know, we came in September, so it was already starting to get cold. We had never seen snow before. We didn't understand what, what was required in winter outerwear. I almost froze to death the first year that, <laughs> that, that we moved here. And literally my brother found me curled up in the snow in, um, the early stages of hypothermia, just, I was freezing. I, I hadn't the proper clothing to keep me warm, you know, on that trek from my home to school. I very strongly remember, vividly remember my grandmother trying to warm my hands up and not knowing what to do and putting my hands under hot water. And if anybody has had, you know, their digits or their toes frozen, the worst thing you can do is, is put it under hot water. It just, you feel like you're on fire, you know? Um, so yeah, I have some interesting memories from my early years in Canada. We moved out to the country, moved out to a small community uh, named Carp, Ontario, about a half an hour outside of Ottawa. One of the first black families ever live in that community, experiencing curiosity, racism, subtle racism, overt racism uh, in a small community where they just didn't have a context for diversity, right. right? They didn't know what that was. But I still have a lot of fond memories from my time in CARP. It was my first experience of being out in the country and kind of having free range. I, I used to go out in the woods and, you know, as an eight-year-old child, I would be out in the woods for hours. My parents would have no idea where I was and I'd go out there with a good book and, you know, I'd go about 20 minutes into the bush and find a pine tree and sit in the pine needles in the shade and read until I was bored. And that, you know, and it was a very nice. kind of idyllic way to live as a child. So I, mm. I have great affinity for the outdoors and, you know, people don't understand my love for camping, even if it's in a tent, they're like, you're crazy. And I'm like, no, I mean, like I grew up in the country. So, you know, right. I, I really love I love wide open spaces and I love doing things that some people might think are not sort of common for right. people of my ethnic background, but <laughs> there it is. I like the outside. I don't like mosquitoes and I don't like spiders, but I like being outside. 
Nice. Um, yeah, so uh, I went to school in Ottawa, uh, did my undergrad degree in Ottawa, married, uh, had some kids, and then moved to Niagara about 22, 23 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, settled here and raised our family here and uh, pursued postgraduate or, yeah, uh, education and my master's degree and have done a whole bunch of different things. So I'm going to leave it to you to ask the questions to figure out what, what direction we want to go in. Because, I mean, I could talk about all manner of things, but... I'll let you kind of. Okay. Well, what, what inspired you to go into uh, psychotherapy? I actually decided when I was about somewhere between the age of eight and 10, I decided that I wanted to be a psychiatrist. My mom was really thrilled. You know, she thought that was awesome because she wanted a child who would become a doctor. And I was her last hope. <laughs> I'm the youngest. <laughs> so she was like, I will do anything you want if you just become a doctor. Um, <laughs> But I, even back then, you know, as a kid, I knew myself really well and I cannot stand bodily fluids and the sight of blood. So there was no way I was going to medical school, right? Like, even though I would probably academically, I I would have done okay. But when it came to the practical stuff, you know, like at the first sign of vomit, I'm throwing up. Right. So how do you expect me to, you know, cut into someone and do all these things like, hey, it's just not going to happen. So I thought about psychiatry and I really wanted to help people and I wanted to help people with the problems that can't be fixed with surgery and medicine, right? So my mom took me to interview a psychiatrist, this really old guy, reminded me of Kermit the Frog, but with age spots. And uh, he was, yeah, he turned me off of psychiatry really quickly. Just... Uh, but mostly it was the part where he said, you have to go to medical school. And I was like, yeah, I, I already decided I'm not doing that. So right, not going to be a psychiatrist. And then I thought, you know, I really love to write. I love the English language. I learned to read when I was really young and I just devoured books. I still do. I probably read five to seven books a week. I can't get enough of, you know. Of oh, books. That's remarkable. That's so, um I thought, well, I could maybe go into journalism because I really like to write. I'm curious. Journalism sounds good. Uh, but I also really still want to help people. So I applied to, to two universities. I applied to Ottawa U and Carleton U. Carleton had a journalism program and Ottawa U had the psychology program. And uh, I just kind of was like, okay, so whoever gives me the January start, that's who I'll, I'll go with. <laughs> so it was really just a toss of a coin that ended right. me up at Ottawa U and I did the psychology program and uh, right away started working in mental health and the rest is kind of history. I worked in mental health off and on. I did other things. I worked as a public speaker. I did catch a stint as a journalist for a little while. Oh. Um, and then I thought, yeah, I'm going to go back to school and get my master's degree. So it was that decision in 20, 2009 Mm-hmm. I decided I was going to go back to school and uh, get my master's degree. And uh, it was a good call. <laughs> okay. So yeah. you've had your own private practice now for how many years? Uh, this will be year 11. Okay. Yeah. And you're enjoying working in the Niagara area? Yeah, I, I do like working in Niagara. I mean, it's it's a diverse enough community in terms of the challenges that we're presented with that, you know, some people are very narrow in their focus and I have never been that. I get bored very easily. And 
like I say, I read a lot. So, you know, I'm constantly consuming more information and learning about different um, therapeutic modalities and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. So being able to incorporate those into my practice, it's been, it's been good. Um, We do a lot of work. My, my area of specialization is anger. You know, I'm kind of, I guess, the go-to person in some ways for uh, anger solutions, training or counseling. But we also work a lot with people who've been in motor vehicle accidents and workplace injuries. And because of that, we had to get really well-versed in chronic pain. And Ah. now chronic pain is one of our areas of specialization. And then I have in within my practice, one of my therapists is Spanish speaking. So I believe she's the only Spanish speaking therapist in Niagara and she speaks Portuguese as well. So when we have immigrants or people who prefer to speak in their first language, they're they're coming to her. We have another therapist who specializes in sport. She's an amateur athlete who was at the top of her game, played lacrosse and hockey and went national in lacrosse and is now a psychotherapist. And so she works with athletes and you know young people who are involved in sport and trying to make decisions, getting scouted, that sort of thing works with them and we're just training a new intern right now and still figuring out what her areas of specialization are going to be but we're suspecting it's going to be youth um, working with issues specifically related to teenagers so yeah it's a very diverse practice in its makeup but also in terms of the scope you know okay so it's a lot of fun Mm -hmm. a lot of hard work mentally exhausting but it's you know you feel good about yourself at the end of the day all right. So you've written some books. So you I, said you were into writing and you sure enough, you've written three books. The first I've one written more than three, the, there's only three, there's only three in the bio. <laughs> oh, I've written more than three. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, tell us what inspired you to write anger solutions. That's a very common problem. So I'm yeah. sure that's a lot of people that book. Yeah, um, Anger Solutions was um, the second book that I published, and uh, it is sort of like the the self-help version of the program that I developed. So in my early days as a mental health worker, I developed a program called Anger Solutions um, to assist people with sorting out why they responded aggressively or passively or whatever their their typical response was to anger, but those responses weren't getting them the outcomes that they wanted. Right. So when I developed the program, I immediately, I I think after about four years, I started training other therapists on how to use the program. And that's how my business started to grow. And then at some point I thought, you know what, I really need to write this as a, as a self-help book for people who will never darken the door of a psychotherapy practice or a psychologist's office. You know, not everybody feels comfortable with going to therapy. So it, it took me took me several years to write it. It was my, you know, this is actually my first book here, Top 10 Lists to Live By. This is just a collection of books that I, uh, of lists that I had written for a radio show back in Ottawa. I did do a brief stint as, um, as a voiceover personality for radio as well. Uh, but that's another story. <laughs> um, so I was writing content for the radio show, ah. uh, for the morning show. And uh, I had this goal that I had set years and years ago that I was going to publish my first book by the age of 30. And 30 was creeping up and Anchor Solutions wasn't done yet. Uh, so I was like, okay, I'm going to publish the book of lists. <laughs> so that, that was kind of my, that was my, 
kick at getting, you know, getting my bucket list completed. Um, but Anchor Solutions took several years to write because I wanted to get it right. Right. Um, when it finally came out, I believe it came out in 2003. It's done pretty well, I guess, overall. But it's my interest in anger really came from, uh, I think, just from growing up in a culture where corporal punishment is the norm. Uh-huh. And sometimes, you know, corporal, corporal punishment comes along because you deserve it. <laughs> And sometimes it comes along because your parent is angry, you know, and they need an outlet. Um, And I was always able to tell the difference between, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was getting a spanking because I earned it and when I was getting a spanking because something was going on with my dad, (laughs) you know, and that's, that's no reflection on my, my dad's love for his family or anything. Right. That is what was culturally acceptable. Right. In our, in our society. Okay? Right. I knew that I didn't want to parent that same way. I wanted to break that cycle. I also knew that there had to be a better way to express your anger when you were feeling it. Mm-hmm. The organization that I was working for at the time, um, there had been some incidents with the clients and they came to a head and we realized that we needed to do something for our clients. So that gave me the opportunity to start researching and building something. Mm-hmm. Uh, And once I started looking through materials and building a program and doing the work, because I believe that if I'm going to share something with someone, I better try it first. I can't say that it works if I haven't actually done the work myself. Right. Right. So I say about this program that everything in it has been kitchen tested. (laughs) (laughs) It's all been tested. If I try something and I'm like, oh, this is uncomfortable and it's actually kind of stupid or perhaps it's a little outdated then I pull those materials out and I replace them with, with something that's new. Right. Um, so the, the program has undergone several transformations over the years. I mean, I started working in the program in 1990, 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, so times have changed, right? Culture has changed. Yes. Um, what is seen as politically correct today was not necessarily politically correct in 1997 or 1994. Um, So the program is constantly under development, constantly changing as we learn more and, you know, and see how it impacts lives and we continue to change it. So yeah, it's it's good work. Good. Now, another book you've written is bullying is not a game. That bullying is a serious problem for youth these days. Can you talk to us about what inspired you to write that book? Sure. Um, I actually wrote that book with Lori Flasco. Lori is the, I would say she would, you know, she, the story is about her and her daughter, uh, Amanda, who experienced severe bullying uh, in public school. Lori came to me with about 65 pages telling Amanda's story and, and giving some tips for parents on how to cope. And she said, you know, what can I do with this? Can you help me to make this? And I was like, yeah, this needs to, this needs to be more, right? We need more on Amanda's story. We need more about what you did, the steps that you took. We need to get some expert advice and we need to ground this story in evidence. Right. Right. So we decided to partner up and what we ended up with was a telling of Amanda's story and then the evidence to explain or, you know, the sort of the academic side to explain why is it that all of a sudden in grade seven, girls kind of go wild and start turning on each other, 
why is it that bullying is, is most common in grade seven and eight? And what happens if bullying doesn't get under control, if those behaviors of kids trying to get their needs met don't get directed in a way that teaches them how to do that healthily, in a healthy way, I guess, then, you know, boys who bully in elementary school become date rapists in college. And then they become toxic bosses in the corporate world, right? Uh So if we don't take care of this when our kids are little, we don't teach them how to be respectful. We don't teach them how to be empathetic and kind to others. That bullying behavior, once it sets in, it's going to be there for life. Um, So we, yeah, we did a lot of, or I should say, I did a lot of research. Lori told the story. I did the research. We pulled it together. And then we went to the community and we talked to the district school board of Niagara, Mm -hmm. asked them about their policies around bullying. They gave us, you know, two, three inch three ring binders full of content that was, you know, all set up at the board level, but most of the teachers on the ground, you know, the front line didn't know that those policies existed. And if they did, they weren't implementing them. Uh So it was interesting to see how, when a parent is trying to navigate the system and they're starting at the front line with the teacher, the teacher doesn't know what the policies are. Right. Mm. So you kind of have to escalate it up to administration at the board because they're the ones that are holding on to the documents and know what's in there. Um, Yeah. So it was a long project. I'm not going to lie. It was published in 2012. We probably worked on that book for about two and a half, three years to get it to the place where we were really happy with it. And it's funny that the reception for the book has been kind of mixed. You know, parents are really excited about it. Schools are not. (laughs) Really? Yeah, because every school, and again, I'm not knocking, you know, I'm not knocking the DSBN or, um, but the reality is that every school says they have a zero tolerance policy. Right. Right. They all say they have zero tolerance. But when you want to know what exactly their strategies are, the actionable things they're going to do to keep kids safe, that's kind of where things tend to fall apart. And so when we would go into schools and say, hey, you know, this might be a valuable resource for you all to have, they would say, well, we have a zero tolerance policy and and that's good enough, right? Like we don't need additional resources because we're good here. Um, Very interesting (laughs) kind of take on things. It's like, yeah, but if you really wanted to have strategies that you could help your students with, there's a whole section in the book that lays out safety plans and strategies that teachers can do and the things that teachers shouldn't do because it actually escalates the bullying or drives it underground. But, oh, no, we, we don't need that because we're already good. We've already got a zero tolerance policy. Really? So very interesting how people approached that book when it came out. Would you like to see a subject in school about this topic? Absolutely. And is it being taught, do you feel? Back when bullying was a bit more of a buzzword, I'd say probably about... 10 years ago, mm-hmm. schools were doing, they would have like an anti-bullying week and they would, you right. know, I would go in, Lori would go in and we would do assemblies and we would talk about bullying and what it looks like and why it's not okay and all those sorts of things. Every once in a while, a child would approach us and say, I need to talk to you, you know? And then we would try to advocate on behalf of that child with the school and the teachers, but like we were swooping in and swooping out. 
I don't think it's part of the everyday curriculum and it really mm. should be, you know, schools have incentive programs, you know, student of the week, those sorts of things, you know, this student's recognized for his compassion or for their empathy or whatever. But the thing is, if you're a child and you lack empathy, you're not going to care about the student of the week awards. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because really all you care about is getting one over on the kid that seems weak to you. So those incentive programs don't actually impact the behavior of the children that they're trying to impact. They impact the behavior of the kids who are already good, who are right. already right. empathetic, who are already compassionate. Right. So I think there needs to be a little shift in the approach. And, and what the research tells us is that teaching pro-social behavior is the way to go. And the way you do that is not to take the bully and the target and to stick them in a room and say, work it out yourselves. Mm -hmm. That's like, that's like taking a man who physically abuses his wife and putting him in a room with his wife and saying, you guys need to work this out. That that's not going to work out. Right. <laughs> you know, at least not for the wife. Anyhow, no. putting kids together in groups and presenting them with this problem that only they can solve, which forces them to work together. Take five kids, put them together in a maze or an escape room or something like that and say, okay, you guys have to work together in order right. to make it out of this room. And every time we see you working against each other, we will penalize you and make it harder for you to get out. So if you want this to be easy, you have to work together. Like those are the kinds of problems we need to presenting our kids with, right? And okay. once they see that, oh, you know what? That kid's actually pretty smart. And if it weren't for them, I never would have made it out of this room. Now I see that there's value in this person. And perhaps this person right. can help me get my needs met in a different way instead of me torturing them emotionally all the time, right? right? So yeah, I, I do believe that there needs to be more done in this area. But the reality is that, you know, the human race is kind of hardwired to, mm -hmm. to look for and exploit weakness. Mm -hmm much as it is hardwired to celebrate strength, right? And so when a weakness is perceived, and I say perceived because a lot of the times the kids who are targeted are beautiful, good looking, smart, athletic, intelligent, and it's the kids who feel inferior to them who target them oh. and bully them because that's the only way that they can feel like they have value. Right. Right? it's not really about real weakness and real strength. It's about perception. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you feel the level of bullying is reducing now that the schools have adopted this zero tolerance and more eyes are on the topic? Do you feel it's lessening? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, didn't that kid just get shot last year? <laughs> Wasn't that last year, right? In Hamilton? That oh, right, right, right. Was Right? Yeah was killed yeah. by a classmate. Right. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's really changed that much. I think another layer to bullying is that often because teachers are not aware of the impact of relational bullying, if you have boys that are beating the snot out of each other in the schoolyard, that's visible, it's tangible, it's measurable, that's mm -hmm. easier to address. But when kids are isolating someone making fun of them to their face when they're causing injury to the child that only the child knows about. And one of the stories in, in our book 
was how in a Remembrance Day ceremony, Amanda's bully sat all around her and poked her with the pins from their poppies in the dark. So no one knew, except for the ones that were involved, the teachers were completely unaware that Amanda was being tortured in an assembly, but what was she going to do? Wow. Right? Teachers tend to see physical bullying as the most harmful and social or relational bullying as the least harmful when in fact it's the other way around. Physical bullying can be deadly as we've seen, right? It with kids that have have been beaten to death or hung up in in a bathroom on a hook and they strangle, you know, they strangle the kid to death accidentally, whatever. But relational bullying carries scars, emotional scars that can last a lifetime. Okay. What percentage of your counseling is to youth who struggle with this problem? For me specifically, not very much. For my other therapists, maybe 10%. It varies. Okay. You know, some of these things tend to come in waves. You know, you get okay. one student who's been bullied and all of a sudden you've got 10, Okay. <laughs> you know, and then you might not hear about it for, for a couple of years and then it starts up again. So, okay. All right. Interesting. So that, that's a topic that we need to work on more as in schools, it sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. You wrote another book called It Is Well, A Study of Motherhood in Times of Crisis. Yes. Was that book birth out of your own personal crisis or uh, ladies that you've worked with in the past? Yeah, it was born out of my own personal crisis. So we had a situation which I'm not going to go too deep into it. One of my sons had a mental health crisis. That mental health crisis escalated into a crisis that involved the law. And when he was arrested and held overnight, it broke him. This is the easiest way that I can say it, it broke him. When we got him out, finally, when we, we were able to bail him out um, the next day, he just fell apart. And uh, that kind of marked for us a journey that lasted about a year and a half, two years. Mm. It, a really, really dark place. Just trying to save him from himself, trying to keep ourselves sane and healthy uh, while we navigated the legal system and the mental health system. You know, I'm a mental health worker, but I obviously can't treat my own child because that would be a breach of ethics. And so making Uh, sure that he got the right care, right medications and, you know, all those sorts of things. It was a really difficult time for all of us, for our family. And so I had been asked to speak at a Mother's Day, at our Mother's Day service in 2018. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, my pastor told me, you've got six minutes, <laughs> you have six minutes to sit, you know, to give a message to our moms. And I started writing and I called my pastor and I said, this is going to be a book. Now that I'm in this, I have more to say, you know, and he said, well, do what you can, you know, try and keep within the time frame." And uh, I, I think I did pretty good. I ended up with nine minutes worth of content. Um, but that nine minutes worth of content evolved into the book. Um, the way that it's broken down is it tells the stories of women in the Bible who faced their own time of crisis. It looks at the ones who dealt with it poorly, you know, Job's wife being your, right. you know, your primary example, right. <laughs> extremely bitter. Um, so we, we kind of start with her and then we work up to the women who handled it. Okay. Right. 
but they didn't get the full measure of closure or blessing that they could have gotten if they had done things a little differently. And then the third, the next part looks at women who, the one woman in particular, who, you know, even when her son was dead and the prophet said, you know, is everything okay? She was like, yeah, everything's fine. It is well, right? Um, So that's where the title comes from. Um, But then uh, I also share bits of my story. And then there are two other women, both close friends of mine, who um, went through some really serious times of crisis with their kids. And they gave me permission to tell their stories as well. I did that and then just looked at the lessons we can learn and the ways that we can apply the principles, you know, from the women of ancient days and then in terms of the modern day crisis that we might find ourselves in, um, how to cope with that. Good. It sounds like this is a required reading, I would say, for any parents to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Don't wait until you find yourself in a crisis before you have to learn some, some tips. One of the things that I wrote in the introduction of the book was that I wish that I had done this research before, (laughs) you know, I wish that that something had said, you know, bad times are coming. Maybe you should prepare yourself because for us, like when we were in the middle of the crisis, there was no time for me to go digging into Bible stories about other women. Like there was, we were in crisis management all the time. Right. So for me, it was, I, I just depended on the Psalms. Right. Right. The Lord is my strength. He is my light. He's my salvation. It was, it was that stuff, you know, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, that's where I went because that stuff was already embedded in my brain. Right. And so that's what I drew on because, mm-hmm. I, you know, there, there was just, yeah, there was no opportunity for me to sit down with my Bible and let's do an intense study on the book of Job <laughs> from the wife's perspective, you know, like there was no time right. for that. So I learned a lot as I was, even though I had gone through it, I learned a lot just in retrospect in terms of looking at what the Bible had to say about these things. There's a section in the book where I talk about the mom blunders, you know, the things that we, that we inadvertently do that can make a situation worse, like blaming ourselves for what happened to our child. You know, my son was an adult when these things happened to him and me looking at his situation and saying, I'm a bad mom, takes away from his experience and makes it about me. So while I could be using my internal resources to support my kid, I'm instead sitting over here having a pity party. Right. Because I'm wondering, what did I do wrong for this to happen? And this has nothing to do with you, (laughs) right? It's it's about your son or your daughter. and the, the complaining or the blaming, you know, I need to find somebody to blame. Whose fault is this? Right. You know, again, instead of just being there for your child. And then there's also a little section in there about church leadership. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that church leaders do that, you know, they're, they mean well, right. but they're not well received because they're not really sensitive to what's happening in the moment. Right. Uh, And then, you know, I asked the moms that I interviewed to share with me some advice for church leaders. You know, if you could tell church leaders how best to support women or moms in crisis, what would you tell them? And I think that's really valuable information, you know, because we often have expectations of church leaders that are unrealistic. 
Mm -hmm. A pastor has a particular role in the church body and therapist is not part of his role. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have these expectations, like we expect the pastor to come at our beck and call. Well, if he's got a church of a hundred people, when's he supposed to sleep? We have expectations that they will understand what we're going through without us having to tell them. Well, they're not mind readers. Right. So we have expectations that they're going to be able to tell us what to do when sometimes they're struggling to figure out what to do with their own situation at home, let alone come up with a great solution for us. Like we have to stop imposing expectations on our leadership when they're not equipped to fulfill those Mm -hmm. expectations. Right. And I'm not going to lie. There were times when I did call my pastor and say, I need you. I need you like now, (laughs) you know, Uh, I remember one particular day, like my husband and I were just like, I don't know what to do, you know? And so I called my pastor and I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm just helping somebody move. And I was like, can you come over? (laughs) You know, I didn't know what else to say. It was like, I just, we just need you right now. And he was like, don't worry about it. And he was kind enough to drop what he was doing and to come to us, you know? But in that moment, while we were sitting there trying to figure stuff out, he said to me, Julie, I don't know what to do because you're the person I call. When someone's having a mental health crisis, I call you. Right. Right. And I was like, I know, but I've got nothing. You know, like this is my kid. I'm too attached. I have nothing for this situation. I need you here. And so, you know, we kind of joke about it now that, you know, I'm not in crisis that much. And it's a good thing because I'm sort of the go-to person in my church when people are in crisis. (laughs) Right. Right. So I better not be having crisis myself. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think it, it, the book has a lot of takeaways in it. Okay. Um, Practical things, you know, just even down to the choices that we make as to whether or not we're going to trust God when we're in a difficult time. Mm -hmm. Right. Those tough times are a test. You know, we call them crisis of faith, but I think it's a test of your faith. Do you actually right. believe that God is who he says he is? Do you actually believe that he can do what he says he can do? Right. Do you actually believe that he will do that for you? Right. You know, like when your world is falling apart, you really need to know those things. Right. You need to know. Right. Because if you don't know, you won't make it through it. I remember that the summer that all of this happened, that it started, I went to a women's retreat in June. My son started breaking down in July. At that ladies retreat, one of the speakers, she said, you all are here and you're all on a high right now. You know, you're all feeling good. But let me tell you something. Dark days are coming. And when those dark days come, it doesn't do you any good to ask God to take you out of the darkness. What you need to ask him is for grace to help you walk through it. The Bible says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there's nothing in there that promises that God's going to deliver me from the valley. Right. I'm, I'm going to walk through it, but right. I have the promise that he's with me. That's what I have to lean on. Right. So if I spend right. all my time saying, God, please make this go away. I'm going to be disappointed. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's right. He never promised he would make it go away. Right. He did promise that he would walk with us right. through those difficult times. Yeah. So, you know, we have, we really have to, I guess, get a grip on what our beliefs really are Mm -hmm. and whether or not we're just believing it because that's what our parents told us to believe, or we believe, you know, do you believe it in here? Right. Is it, is it a 
a head belief right. or is it a heart belief, right? Right. right. Yeah. I have a question for you. Um, about 10 minutes ago, we talked about your son going through his crisis. And I would look at your life and say that, uh, that his mom was a pretty educated, well-balanced uh, woman, but a lot of moms aren't, aren't you, don't have your pristine background. What would you say to parents who have made mistakes and now they're, they're uh, seeing the harvest of those mistakes in their kids? Well, I, I will be completely transparent and say that, you know, what, what you see on the surface is not a complete representation of the person that I am. I have made loads of mistakes. Every parent on the planet makes mistakes. There is no such thing as a perfect parent, right? There just, there just isn't. We all make mistakes. Sometimes we overcompensate for the things our parents did. Sometimes we undercompensate. Okay. We're trying to find a balance. None of us uh, was given uh, a user's manual for our kids. Okay, like no one, no one came out and said, uh, you know, you're going to have a baby now. Here is a book that will teach you how to be a perfect parent. There are lots of books on parenting. There are lots of diverse ideas about, you know, should you wear your baby? Should you not wear your baby? Should you breastfeed? Should you bottle feed? Blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. It's confusing. Right. Really, we don't know what we're in for until we have a kid. I remember when my twins were little and we would get into altercations. Well, not altercations, but we'd argue about stuff, you know, and I would sit down with my boys and I would say, hey, you think I know everything, but I don't know anything. I've never parented 12 year old twins. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> right. Okay. I think that transparency with my children helped a lot because it helped to remind them that we hadn't done this before we're going to make mistakes, right? I'm right. going to, I'm going to do things right. I'm going to do things wrong. I'm going to say yes, when I should have said no, I'm going to say no, when I should have said yes, that's going to okay. happen. Right. Because I've never done this before. Even now right. they're going to be, they're going to be 27 this month. And every once in a while, it's like, well, I've never, you know, I've never lived in a house with three grown men before. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> And then they laugh and I'm like, my mom would be mortified if she knew I was living in a house with three grown men, you know, <laughs> but, but it's like, we've, we've never done this before. Right. You know, so we're learning as we go every single day. And I think for moms who perhaps feel the weight of their mistakes, you know, maybe a little bit more than I do, I think I would say a couple of things. Number one, it's never too late to you know, you can't go back and change what you've done, but it's never too late to change the direction that you're going in. I grew up in a society where apologizing to your kids wasn't a thing. Okay. I very clearly remember the day that I heard a parent apologize to a child and it rocked my world. Huh. Not lying. Like I, right. I couldn't believe that that was allowed. <laughs> you know? Like I, I just, I grew up believing that if you, if you got hurt, or you got in trouble as a child, it was your fault, right? Right. Parents never apologize to their children for anything. So, you know, it's something that I've tried to incorporate into my own life, understanding that hearing the apology validates the child, validates the child's experience. And you can do that when your child is six and you can do it when your child is 60 
every year for at Christmas time, I write my kids a Christmas letter. It's tradition. Um, my husband and I think about what we want to say to our kids. And then I, you know, I sit down and I write them a letter on Christmas Eve. And that's part of what they get Christmas morning. This past Christmas, the letter was very, very simple. And it said, we're sorry. Wow. That was wow. what kids got this year for Christmas. We're sorry. Whoa. We're sorry for every mistake we made, for every way that we, har that we harmed you or hurt you and didn't know we were doing it, for every time that we should have said yes to you and we said no, for every time that we said no to you and we should have said yes, for every right. opportunity you missed out on, we're sorry. And um, I just, you know, I had been feeling that for a long time that even though we've had conversations over the years, I felt like I needed to declare that in a way that my kids understood that we really meant it. Okay. Um, and uh, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot of bawling and hugging and, you know, that kind of thing, but there were a few surreptitious, you know, tear swipes and some subdued, thank you, mom, thank you, dad. And right. some quiet reflection, right? Um, right because I don't want to repeat those things that have happened in my family for generations. Right. And I felt like the apology, the coming clean was a way for us to close off that, you know, that aspect of our heritage, if you will, and start right. something new. I don't want my kids to carry that on forward with their kids. Right. No, right. Um, right, right. And so all you moms out there who are thinking, you know, I've made some horrible mistakes and I don't think I can come back from that. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. A heartfelt apology, true repentance, right? That counts. Right. It counts for a lot. Telling your kids you're proud of them. Right. You know, the first time my dad said he was proud of me, like I couldn't speak. <laughs> I was speechless. Wow. Because I just, I had waited my whole life to hear those words. And I was already married with children by the time I'd heard them the first time. Right. So, you know, these are the things that we take for granted that we just figure our kids know, but they don't, they really don't know. Right. right. I remember in our crisis, my son saying at one point, he said, like, I just, I don't want to keep disappointing you. Mm. And both my husband and I looked at him and said, we have never, ever said we're disappointed in you. And we will never say that. We'll never use that language. We know mm. that you made some mistakes, but we're here for you, right? right? And you don't have to do something. You don't have to make a choice just because you're hoping it will make us proud because we're already proud of you. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think yeah. having those transparent, open conversations with your children goes a long way because they don't know what's in your head. They're making up the story. They're creating a narrative. Right. And it right. may be the narrative that you want them to have. Yes. So open communication is key yeah, yeah. very good well I, i'm thrilled to have had our talk julie thank you so much and i know it's gonna help a lot of people so, i hope so i hope so uh, so thanks again and i hope you have a great rest of your day and i look forward to people responding to this talk we've had so thank you so much vince it's been a pleasure thanks for having me on thank you bye for now the Rise Radio Network is a soon-to-be-broadcasting network of community radio stations whose goal is to help people rise above their life's challenges. You can reach us at 289-931-2884.
and on the web at riseradionetwork.com.